What up, party people? This is Ian Lenhart coming at you from Miami, Florida, just letting you know that it is a damn good day to have a damn good day. Today is Tuesday. We got Thanksgiving coming around the corner. This episode will be released post-Thanksgiving, but I'm here to let you know that you need to spend some time with the fam. Even if you're not going home, make sure you get on a Zoom call, give them a phone call. I do this thing when whenever I'm in the car and I have 10 to 15 minutes, I just think about any old friends that I haven't caught up with in a while and I just give them a call. Like I'll hit someone up I haven't talked to in five years and just be like, Chris, what's up, man? How you doing? And it's amazing. You just pick right up where you left off. You get an insight into someone else's life and it makes the car ride go a lot quicker, especially if you have some sort of headphone situation. If you don't have AirPods today, I don't know how you survive. AirPods, huge proponent of it. Yeah, 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 you could use the, the corded headphones, but they, come on, like there's just no comparison. Hopefully they're not giving us some sort of crazy radiation. I guess we'll all find out in 20, 30 years. But I'm so excited for today's guest. You guys are gonna get so much value, but before we jump into it, we're gonna talk about something that's very spoken about on this podcast, and that's the idea of mentorship. It is so freaking important to have mentors in your life. If you don't have mentors in your life, chances are you're just kind of slacking. You know, it's just the fact. If, If no one's pushing you or giving you a goal to push towards, you just tend to chill. And chilling makes you feel unproductive. Unproductive makes you unhappy. Unhappy makes all other aspects of your life, your health, your social life, feel miserable. You need to be pushing towards a goal. You need to have someone that's in your corner, like saying, hey, by the way, what are you doing? You need somebody that's pushing you to become a better you. Hopefully you work in in an organization or amongst a group of people of all stars that you're constantly trying to strive to be better. That's what makes us sleep good at night. That's what makes us happy. That's why you could be a millionaire, a billionaire, or broke, and if you don't have any ambitions at the time, you're sad, you're depressed. You need to find a mentor that believes in you, believes in your mission, and holds you accountable. Sometimes that can cost money. I mean, we're gonna talk about Phil Michaels, and he's a legend. I mean, Phil is the founder of Tembo Education. He was Forbes 30 under 30. Also a good friend of my good friend, Joe Glacken, shout out. And he's a performance coach and he mentors unbelievable people, CEOs of giant corporations, athletes, all different groups. And he speaks on this podcast about common themes he sees amongst these high performers and amongst these people that you would think they probably have their life all figured out. But no, a lot of them, they're just as effed up as you and I. They get sidetracked. They have things that push them out of the way. Not everybody is perfect at everything. That's a fact. So this episode really breaks down these successful habits and these things that you know Phil's seeing on the reg. And I'm just so grateful Phil came on the show. First of all, Phil is a badass. I mean, just when you guys hear him, this episode, we, we went so deep into so many different things. I really think this is where this podcast is evolving into, going deeper down these, these routes of understanding the human brain and, and just what consciousness means and all the different aspects of learning. And, and I, I was fascinated about some things that we learned as youths and how the brain moves in that facet. Phil will jump more into it. I'm going all over the place. But the point is, it is a damn good day. I missed you guys. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, episode 111 of the Len Jones Party of Two podcast. We're live, we're doing it. And without further ado, let's jump into it. And we're live, Phil Michaels. He's in the building, the man, the myth, the legend. I'm so excited you're here. How is it going, my friend? So excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am just honored. This is a pleasure. I know we've been trying to do this for a while now, so it's a gift. Thank you for having me. And you're based in Tampa, Florida right now, so I just moved to Miami, and you live in Tampa, who my good friend Joe Glacken also lives, and that's how we met, which is pretty cool. Yeah, Joe Glacken, we got a mutual friend. So now you have even more of a reason to come visit. We're on the West Coast, you're on the East Coast. Welcome to Florida. We're now both officially Florida men. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we don't end up in the news though, as the Florida man. Right, right. Yes, amen to that. But I I was just telling you, so this weekend I I spent the weekend in Key Largo and we went scuba diving and it was just 
beautiful. I was just, I was blown away. I mean, when I got certified in scuba diving, I got certified in New Hampshire, right? So mm. fresh out of spring, we're in the ocean with a seven millimeter wetsuit on and it's, you know, looking around, looking at brittle stars <laughs> and, you know, maybe one or two fish, like nothing exciting, visibility four or five feet. Then you come down to the Keys and it's 50, 60 feet. You got eagle rays, nurse sharks, angelfish, like so much amazing fit. It was incredible, man. Like, have you been, do you do a lot of snorkeling or, or scuba diving at all? You know, my dad would probably kill me for this, but he was an extensive diver. He had been a diver off the coast of Peru. He lived in Utila, which is the island off the coast of Honduras, which is a big diving community there. And he used to dive all the time. He was actually on Good Morning America for sifting for gold and diving in Peru and back in the 70s. And yet I never caught that bug. You know, I love the water. I grew up by the water in South Jersey. Uh, actually, the Monopoly board, most people don't know this, the Monopoly board is designed after Atlantic City. So I lived in Marvin Gardens, the yellow. And if you remember that, those are all real locations, Park Place, Boardwalk, Ventnor Ave, Oriental, etc. I lived in Park Place and grew up right by the water. Always felt this bug of being near the beach, but never really caught the bug to go diving. So, you know, maybe you and Glack can give me an excuse to, to go diving one day and, and you know, bite the bullet. But uh, his, the producer of the Good Morning America segment got the bends and ended up passing away as a result. So I want to make sure I'm doing it properly and maybe not coming up too fast for those that are listening that don't know. It's apparently when the, the CO2 gets into the blood too, because you rise to the surface too quickly, if right. I remember correctly. Yeah. So when you're down in the depending on the feet and time is very important. So based on if you're such as a hundred feet deep in the ocean, you can only be there for, let's say maybe 10 minutes before you have to go up because you're accumulating four X the amount of nitrogen as you would, if you were just a bit higher. Mm -hmm. um, what happens there is that if the nitrogen gets too much and you don't decompress and do these safety stops, which is literally where you just sit in the ocean or in the water at say 65 feet or 15 feet, maybe both and it decompresses the nitrogen out of your body, you can end up getting the bends because what happens is that nitrogen can actually do really bad things like block blood vessels. It can block blood flow. You can have seizures. You can pass out. It's really some serious yeah, stuff. He ended up passing away, unfortunately. So uh, definitely a little on edge about that. But if I'm with the right people, I'm sure, sure we'll figure it out. And then I heard this, these stories of people getting caught in caves and even the rescue divers can't extract them from the cave. So little things like that, I definitely uh, want to make sure I'm doing it properly. Yeah. I actually went to Cancun in a device called the BOB, B-O-B. It stands for Breathing Observation Bubble. I don't know if you've seen these things. There's the, there are these underwater scooters where it's just a big glass bubble and it's attached to a little scooter bike. And it's motorized. And so you go underwater and you can go like 50 feet. Don't quote me on the number. And it has like a little propeller that you can rev just like a motorcycle. And you're underwater and it just works because of the suction. It keeps your head in a, in a bubble of oxygen. And so you're just underwater, you know, scooting around. It's really cool. That's like the closest I've gotten to legit diving. And funny story, I was with my dad. He ended up getting seasick from bull riding the, the night before uh, in Cancun and ended up puking in the bubble. So now you have the, the waters right here and he's in the, the air bubble and the vomit is just floating at the top of the water. So everybody got a kick out of that and he, nobody let him live that down. The Bob sounds pretty epic and I agree with you. Cave diving is sketchy, I'm not into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I'm all about adventure. But at the same time, there's so much that can go wrong when you're cave diving. Yeah, that's it, scary. If you're literally some caves around here that people go diving in. I'm not sure where in Florida. I think it's more in central Florida. Our buddy Blake, he he does a bunch of that, I think. There's an amazing podcast clip from Joe Rogan's with uh, Joe Rogan's podcast with Cowboy Cerrone, the UFC fighter. Yep. And did you hear that clip with him? I did. Cave diving? It's, Tell me about it. It's just intense. I mean, he just talks about this time where he's really into cave diving and he went in deep with a friend 
lost the friend, couldn't find the friend, couldn't find his way out, was completely stuck, thought he was just done, couldn't, you just couldn't find his way out because the rope had moved or whatnot. It, it was such a telling story of, of what someone's thinking about when you go through that situation where you quickly realize like, oh shit, I could lose my life right now. So to all you daredevilers out there that love that, bravo to you, all you motorcycles, motorcyclists, you crazy peeps. <laughs> well, you the know, closer but, you are to death, the more alive you feel, as they it, say. There's definitely truth in that when you think about traveling. I think that when you travel, you feel alive because you're, you don't know where you are. That's a mm. little left turn. You don't know where you are. You don't know who you are around. So you're so aware, you know, your, your senses are so high and heightened. That's what I feel like when I dive. I think mm. scuba diving is the only time in my life that I've ever truly been able to meditate, which I don't want that to be the case. I want to get good at meditation. But when you're diving, all you're focused on is breathing and nothing else. I'm not worried about work, relationships, life at all. I'm just thinking, breathe and just squirrel, you know, angelfish. Like I just get super excited. <laughs> yeah, that it's, it reminds me of the flow state. Flow has become a bastardized term now, but it's, it's a buzzword. But it was actually originally coined by Dr. Mihai Chesent Mihai in the book called Flow. And it's actually one of my favorite books and the book I probably recommend more often than any other book. It's actually this, this green one down here. I don't know if you can see it on the camera. And it's all about flow state. And the flow state is the intersection of your greatest passion and your greatest competency, which is your, ultimately your purpose. And when you can reach that intersection, you reach this state of mind where you're in flow, where everything seems to not matter anymore and time seems to be warped. And so it, it's a very fascinating book if you haven't already read it, but it, you speaking about it reminds me of the stories he tells about people in flow and a lot of climbers experience this like if you've ever watched that documentary called solo where the free climber it's the first free climber at all what ever. an epic documentary oh my god to cl climb el capitan with no ropes attached nothing first one ever in in history that we know of so pretty impressive when they get in the flow state that is insane imagine that you just <laughs> You know, do you ever see those videos on Instagram of people that do those, they jump from building to building and go right on the edge? Part of me just wants to slap those people because that is, <laughs> it's too much just to watch, your heart sinks, you know? It's taking parkour to a whole new level. And my biggest fear is heights, but I love facing that fear. So I've been skydiving a few times. I went skydiving, skydiving over the palm in Dubai, which is that man-made island that looks like an actual palm tree. Um, where the Atlantis Hotel is, and it's beautiful, but there's nothing like that exhilarating feeling of when you're in that plane and they're just like, okay, you're just gonna jump from 18,000 feet, and you just have to trust that there's ground beneath you and that everything's gonna be okay. It's that split second decision where you're like, okay, just have to trust other people with my life, and in a split second, things can go wrong and I could be dead. Well, that really is a great segue into just who you are as a person. I've truly admired getting to know you and, and everything you've done. Uh, you're the host of the Forbes 30 Under 30 podcast, shout out. You know, you've you founded this amazing company, Tembo Education, and I want you to tell the people a little bit about that. I'm curious about that journey. You know, you have done so sure. much and such so good too. Like your company does good for people and that's so amazing, right? Tell us about where the idea came from and where it kind of sparks that into motion. Sure. Thanks, Ian. Um, I was pre-med in my undergrad. I always wanted to be an ophthalmologist, eye doctor, actually, eye surgeon. Specifically, shadowed doctors my whole life, graduated, worked for the New York Yankees, team physician, and actually in Tampa. Most people don't know this, but a lot of the Yankees live in Tampa, and they just commute to New York when they need to. The whole Steinbrenner family, the owner of the Yankees, lives here in Tampa, too. So I'm working there and a buddy of mine and I, we created this idea for a fitness app, which led to applying to ABC's TV show, Shark Tank. Ended up becoming a finalist for season four in 2012. There was a 36,000 applicants, 141 finalists. And of the 141, we were one of them and worked with Kate Ryu, the producer. I got to meet uh, Damon John, Mark Cuban, 
And that led to, we ended up dissolving the business, but that led to the spark of entrepreneurship just expanding. And I was like, wow, you could impact so many people as an entrepreneur. You could make as much money as you want. You can live the lifestyle that you want to lead. But as a doctor, I could only see so many patients, for example. So I decided to quit my pursuit toward medicine and wanted to become an entrepreneur. And my mom was like, who the hell quits the New York Yankees? And what the hell is an entrepreneur? So that was a difficult conversation to have. But that, de that decision led me to wanting to get my MBA and a master's of science and marketing, which is actually where I met Joe Glacken. So we're in grad school together and I wanted to stand out amongst the crowd. I, I knew everybody was gonna get their MBA sooner or later. So I wanted to do a dual degree. So I got two masters at the same time, MS in marketing and MBA. And while I was doing that, I started traveling the world, spent time living in five continents. I've been to over 24 countries and I was lucky enough to meet a lot of people and see a lot of initiatives, including those that were doing good. And what I noticed was a lot of people were donating either food, water, housing, or healthcare. Not many people were focused on education. So I figured if we're gonna solve the world's problems, why not educate people to solve their own problems instead of trying to you know, do it that for them? Like the old adage, give a man a fish versus teaching him how to fish. So I figure why not educate people to solve their own problems and why not start at the earliest age possible? Age zero to six is the most imperative for brain development. So why not start there? About 90% of the brain is formed by age four and five. So when I started vetting the other education initiatives that were around in developing nations around the world, I noticed a lot of them were focused on secondary school or higher ed. Not many were focused on that age group of zero to six, the most imperative for brain development. And the ones that were did one of two things. They either were building a mobile app or they were building schools. The problem with a mobile app is a lot of them don't have smartphones and the ones that do can't afford the mobile data capacity that it needs. They need to download these apps. It's expensive too. And the ones that are building schools, there was tons of schools. I lived in the slums of Nigeria, for example, arguably the worst slums in the world. They had tons of schools. Schools were not the issue. The problem is the schools are more like daycare drop-off centers rather than high quality educational institutions. Little to no materials, four walls. Sometimes the, the teachers don't show up. Um, and it's more like a place where parents can drop off their kids so they can go to work. So when I saw this issue, I said, why not use something they're already using every day? Why not educate them using a, a distribution channel they're already using every day? What are they using every day? SMS text messages. So we decided let's educate them via text message. So that's what we do. Tembo Education educates zero to six year old children around the world using text messages. We send one activity per day to the parent's phone. Parent educates their child using that day's activity. And then we reward the parent for educating their child with Amazon gift cards, mobile data for their phone, whatever that culture needs or, or wants to be rewarded by. We're in five countries now. Uh, Nestle is our biggest customer. So we've been very lucky to come a long way. We started it in Nigeria and we're now working on the technology to allow anyone in the world to sign up. Um, that's what we're currently developing. And we're now on WhatsApp. We're an official WhatsApp educator. So we actually have like the green check mark next to our name when you receive the activity. So that is kind of how the idea formed that led to me getting lucky enough to be published in Forbes magazine as the top 30 entrepreneurs under the age of 30. That led to a lot of people saying, hey, Phil, can you help me with my business? And I was like, sure. And I started helping people on the side just for free, friends, peers. And what I realized, Ian, two things. One, I really freaking love it. And two, I'm really freaking good at it. And so I started to become a business coach, a performance coach for peak performers, mostly CEOs at Harvard and MIT because I lived in Boston for about three and a half years. But I also coach the number one Saudi rapper in the Middle East in Dubai, the number one poker player in the world, investors, traders, and, and, and others, just those that want to be at the, the top 1% of their game. So that's what I've been focusing on now and to help others become educated in business 
and life and how they can learn best practices, whether they want to start their own business. So for, I'm sure you have those in the audience that one, they have an idea, but they haven't taken that leap yet. Or two, they already have the idea. They already have a, a business they're running, but they want to learn best practices. That's why I created the podcast. So the fill with Forbes 30 under 30 is on, the only podcast in the world that exclusively interviews those that have made the Forbes list. And so it's, it's to provide those best practices, the ways, the stories that people use to get to where they are now, but from successful, well-known entrepreneurs. LeBron James may, has made the list, so it's athletes too. It's not just entrepreneurs. It's people that have made the top 1% of their game in 20 different industries, music, entrepreneurship, et cetera. So that's, that's my story. That's a great story. And there's <laughs> a lot to digest there. First of all, when did you move to Nigeria? 2015. So what start sparked that? Did you want to just be in the, in the brush of it? Good question. So when we were figuring out where should we explore using this education service, we looked at some of the worst areas in the world because we figured if we could do it in the most remote, uh, densely populated populations, some of the poorest slums in the world, then we would be able to do it anywhere. So we looked at some of the countries and Nigeria is the fourth most densely populated country in the world. They have about 200 million people. They're almost um, the entire size of the US population, but in a place that's only twice the size of California. So it's extremely densely populated. We worked in the very urban areas and we figured if we could do it here, we could do it anywhere. So that's why we decided to start there. And Nigeria speaks more languages than any other country in the world, except two. And yet they still preferred English as their primary language uh, for their children to learn from because they, they looked at it as a way to escape poverty. So we actually taught in English, which is pretty cool. Interesting. And then you go there and you just find what's the everyday life like there? Sure. So um, we worked in about 13 different LGAs, which is, it stands for local government areas. That's their version of, let's say a city, for example. And we go there and we're just exploring the area to navigate, you know, who are the super connectors? That's the key is you got to get in with the people that know other people, these super connectors. And one of the ways we found to reach the super connectors was churches. Churches are huge in Nigeria and in Africa in general, but specifically in Nigeria, you have these pastors that are also connected to the business community. It's not like in the US where you have religion and kind of business separated. There, they're very much tied together. And we found this one pastor, I mean, they run four hour church ceremonies huge i mean musicians they have a whole band they have camera crews uh, hundreds of, and hundreds of people sometimes thousands of people and they're all in a church everybody's getting excited this is a big day for nigeria so the pastor is up there and he's also a partner in accounting in an accounting firm so he's a pastor and running this successful business which is rare but we knew that if we could get in with this guy we're in there like swimwear so we're at the ceremony, we're one of his guests. So he reserved seating in the very front row. So it was my team and I, my co-founders and I, we're in the front row and we're like, this is big. And I'm wearing the Nigerian garbs, uh, Ankara design, which is a Turkish kind of design to it. It, it was really cool. So I'm, I got the whole garb going on and we're going through the ceremony, we're singing, we're dancing, we're having a great time. And all of a sudden, he goes, I want to welcome a very special guest to the stage. And there's thousands of people around. And we're looking around like, who is he going to call? This is going to be great. And he goes, I'd now like to welcome to the stage Phil Michaels from the United States of America. He didn't tell me this. I had no plan. I didn't know what I was going to say. So now I have to go up on stage and speak to an audience I've never been prepared to speak in front of. I'm, you know, I'm a grad student just trying to figure out my way. Brings me up on stage and I'm speaking in front of all these Nigerians. And I'm like, what am I gonna say on the way up? I'm so nervous, like, what am I gonna say? What am I gonna say? And I look at the back of the room and I see their logo. They have a, it's very well branded. The churches are very business oriented there. They have social media handles and everything. And the logo, says the trinity house and 
something lit a light bulb there, turned the light bulb on for me. And I go up there and I'm thanking him. And I say, I, I just decided to end the conversation with this line. And it really helped. I was like, I now know why the Trinity house is not just a house, but this community has made it a home. And everybody goes up Nigeria and up Niger. And it's their version of God bless America. And the crowd goes wild. And they're like, yeah. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> Said something that resonated with them. And I like, all right, I'm going to end on the high note. End on a high note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get off stage. Get off. <laughs> Hurry off the stage. Damn, that's intense. What an awesome experience. It was a beautiful experience. And, you know, it feels like family there now. And, you know, knowing what I know now, the areas that we were in, we shouldn't have been in. I mean, it's very old school Italian mafia style where when you go into a community, you pay off the chief. You kind of let them know, like, out of respect, hey, we're coming into your community just to, to visit and their version of an LGA. So it was really interesting. I, I wish every American had to live in the slum of a developing nation for a while, not do charity work or nonprofit work, like actually have to survive like we did because it gave us a whole new perspective and appreciation and gratitude for living in the U.S. I've been to 24 countries. There's no country that even comes close to to living in the U.S. and I wouldn't I wouldn't have it any other way. So you wanted yeah. to get inspired, and you go to the heart of where you think that you would might be able to be inspired, essentially. And then what happened from there? Like once you leave Nigeria, what what's next for you? Sure. So we wanted to see if it was it would work. That was like our proof of concept. Is this something that could work here? So we built it, not knowing where we were going to scale to next. And it worked in Nigeria. So we're like, all right, we get back to the US and everybody's like, yeah, Phil, that's great what you guys did over in Africa. But when can you bring this here to the US? And we're like, we weren't planning on building it here. We were, this was meant for the developing nations. And we kept getting that question asked, like, listen, Phil, there's tons of resources here in the US. And I was like, yeah. And it's a lot of it's for free. You have tons of access to materials, resources. We have great education here. And, they, and I said, you know what? That's exactly it. They need it here for a different reason than developing nations. Developing nations need it because they might not have access to other locations. Whereas in the US, there's so much out there, they almost drown in information and noise, but they're seeking that wisdom. So how could we simplify it? And everybody answers their text messages in the US. So that's when we started building the platform to work in the US, which is one of the countries we operate in now. Because we figured, okay, 90% of people answer their text message within the first three minutes of receiving it. You don't get email response rates like that and newsletter response rates like that, phone calls, et cetera. So we said, huh, maybe we're onto something here. So that's when we started developing a platform that could work in other countries. And that's why the tech now, we're in five countries now, but the tech we're building now is going to allow any parent across the globe in any country to sign up on their own when they want. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of what we started doing. Once we got back to the U.S., people were like, all right, we need this here in the U.S. And the issues in, in Nigeria and developing nations is kind of threefold. It's quality, access, and cost, affordability. With regard to quality, I mentioned they have tons of schools, but the schools are more like daycare drop-off centers. With access, some of the locations are so far away for their children to be educated, it's, it's not feasible. And in some of the, the areas, the local government areas are entirely surrounded by water. So they only can be accessed through canoe. There's this one community called Makoko, and there's about 200 to 300,000 people that live there with only one school serving 200 children. So there's tens of thousands of children not receiving an education simply because they cannot be accessed, but they all have a mobile phone. And then lastly, with affordability, we wanted to find something that if they can't access a high quality education because of cost, let's meet them where they're at. Let's find a more affordable way to educate these children using a mobile phone. And we're, we're not dumbing down the curriculum. So for the, we use the same curriculum we use in the US. It's based on the Harvard Center for the Developing Child, covering all four domains of learning, language, cognitive, motor, and social emotional. So that's, it's a comprehensive curriculum of exactly what you should be learning as a brain is developing. 
is this is this is not a guessing game. There's no ambiguity here. We now know what you should be learning at each stage of the brain's development. And you, I'll give you, yeah, go ahead. You mentioned earlier that between the ages of zero and six is where 90% of the brain develops. That's pretty crazy. Meaning those are some of the most formative years and it makes sense to spend a lot of time inside of that. That just, that blew me away. Yeah. And how much time are we really focused on it? Most parents think at that age, kids are just supposed to eat, sleep and, and go to the bathroom when it's the exact opposite. We should have the highest quality teachers teaching preschool, not higher ed, higher ed, you know, we have independent adults that can learn on their own. We need the smartest teachers teaching the youngest children because that's the most imperative time for brain development. I'll give you an example um, of, this is an, a tip, not an actual activity, but these are some of the tips that we share. Children that watch TV with subtitles on learn to read two years earlier than children that watch TV without subtitles. That's the change of a button on a TV remote, but changes the trajectory of your child's life forever. Because what you do from zero to six impacts you for the rest of your life. So 40 years of life and later uh, studies show. So that's one example. Another example is what American Academy of Pediatric Rec uh, Pediatrics recommends is no child at the age of two or below should be exposed to screen time. How many parents are following that? Not many. How many kids you see with an iPad out or a phone, they're being exposed to way too much screen time. And what's happening is one of the ways that you detect proper development in a child is through um, this ex exercise where you roll a ball to a child. And if the, the child is developing properly with their gross and fine motor skills, the child should grasp for the ball with all five fingers. Even if they don't get it, they should still grasp for it with their whole hand. What children that have been exposed to too much screen time are doing, is they're going like this, swiping at it as if it's on a screen. The children are not able to distinguish between 2D objects and 3D objects because they've been exposed to too much screen time. They think the object is like on a screen, like an iPad or an iPhone, rather than something in real life. Wow. That's so a lot. Imagine how that, that changes your brain for the rest of your life too. So parenting is so important. And I know I'm going on like a motivational rant right now, but what we do from zero to six is so important that we won't have the problems we're having with adults right now if we focused more on parenting. Because those children, they're becoming the adults of our next generation, the, the future of our society. So yes, there are adults here. We need to fix problems we have in adulthood. We need to burn from both ends of the candlestick though. We can work on problems at adulthood, but we should put, be putting a lot of focus, energy, and time and effort on that first end of the candlestick where we are developing human beings, making sure they're good human beings for society. They have empathy, emotional regulation, emotional intelligence. It's so important, but that's my motivational rant for the day. <laughs> I'm, I'm so into this. I want to go deeper. I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Luckily we're friends and we can talk about more of this offline, but still that is blows my mind. So you, how did you first figure out the revenue model in Nigeria? So when it came to the affordability aspect, at what point did someone say, I'm going to start paying for this? It's a great question. You're good. So there's three, there's typically three payers or customers. Um, we have B2B to C, B2B, and then B2C. I'll explain that. So our number one most popular and most attractive to us is a business or government or foundation nonprofit paying on behalf of a group of children. So Nestle is an example of this. Nestle pays for children to receive an education. The second most common customer is the school or daycare center paying for their own children. And then the third most common is a parent paying for themselves. We have all three, but those are the most popular in that order. So that's how we make it affordable. It's most common that the ones that can't afford it themselves will be paid for by a Nestle, a government or a foundation, for example. Got it. So then they can write that, you know, that's, you know, they're working for a nonprofit. They're able to put money into a cause they believe in. That's great. Everything win-win for everything. They look at it. They look at it as like a CSR initiative. Um, they, they actually call it CSV. So CSR is corporate social responsibility, a very popular uh, 
corporations use this technique a lot, but they call it CSV, which is creating shared value. And they look at it as like, you know, if Nestle is providing this amazing education for children, a Harvard-based education, our curriculum is developed in-house by a team, our team from Harvard's Graduate School of Educational. So a lot of very smart, intelligent people. And then they say, listen, we're giving these children and these families an education. The next time they go and choose a water bottle, for example, they're going to choose a Nestle water bottle over another brand. So it's creating that shared value of exchange. And then in terms of like the zero to two, you can't be looking at a screen. So you're not texting people then. Do you have a certain like age range you're texting people like four to six then? We text the parents and then the parents educate the child. Got it. Okay. So the child's not actually getting the screen time. And we tell the parent exactly what to say and do with their child. So there's, it's, not, it's meant to be as easy and a turnkey process. So the parent just reads exactly what they need to say. We put in capital letters what the parent says out loud to the child. So it's meant to be so seamless, just one simple activity each day that can really change the trajectory of your child's life. And we actually start prenatal. We start at week 13 in the mother's womb because that's the first time that neurons are created in the occipital and temporal lobe of the brain. So we figured why not start at the earliest age possible that the brain is starting to develop. So we have activities that actually stimulate the brain from week 13 while it's still in the mother's womb. So there's little activities you can do with sound and light exposure, like exposing the mother's belly to light contrast. These are called light turnovers. And then there's also something called a conversational turnover. So they found that studies show that when you're talking to a baby, for example, and you should speak to them like an adult, full sentences, and you're talking to the baby and the baby makes a sound, even if it's incoherent, it doesn't matter. That's the baby's version of talking back to you. So you should talk as if it's a conversation. So if you say, you know, hi, little Ian, how are you doing? And the baby say, goo goo, ga ga. That's their response. So you should respond as if they just said a coherent sentence to you. And that, that back and forth, that's one turnover. The more turnovers you have, the more neurons are created in the brain. So we want to try and fire as many synapses as possible because what happens by age four, Ian, is something called synapse pruning, where your brain basically tries to conserve energy. Your brain is always trying to conserve energy for survival. So your brain says, huh, you know what? Some of these synapses and neurons, we're not really using that often. Let's get rid of them. We need to save energy. So you actually prune off these synapses, these neurons from firing, and you just focus on the ones that are most important. So if you're not firing them often and regularly, we get rid of them. So you want as much structured stimuli in the brain as possible between the zero to six. So you don't prune off that many synapses and neurons because the malleability of the brain drops 50% by age eight months old. So within eight months, the malleability of the brain, meaning how fast and easy it is for the brain to change and develop, drops 50% by eight months old. So you want to get as much structured stimuli from zero to eight months as possible. And then it drops almost another 50% from eight months to about four years old. And then it, that, that's why it's about 90% of the brain is formed by age four and five. So you're trying to get as much stimuli, structured stimuli as possible during those years, because for the rest of your life, not only is the malleability, malleability going down, the neurological, the physiological effort to create new neurons increases. So it's harder for you to create these new neurons, which is why it's easier for a baby to learn new languages and multiple languages than it is for you and I right now. I you love this. the cognitive bandwidth. I love this. And, and we took it a step past just because you've done so much research into education. Look at someone our age. How does somebody in their mid to late 20s or early 30s, how do they learn? Like what's the most effective way to spark neurons and synapses once you're already this age? So there's so much neuroscience now. We're still in our nascent stages of understanding neuroscience. I just interviewed a neuroscientist from McGill University on my podcast. He studies, and I'll get into your question in a second, but this is really cool. He studies post-mortem brain tissue samples for those that have experienced trauma in their life. So he takes the brain after someone has died, 
takes that tissue sample and studies what were the neurological pathways that something in your childhood might have occurred and led to, let's say, you died by suicide. What led to that? He looks at the, the process through which the biochemical pathways have traversed. I mean, it's unbelievable. He works specifically in the Broadman Area 10 of the prefrontal cortex. 20 years ago, we didn't even have the ability to, to look at this. I mean, we finished the Human Genome Project in, I think, 2005. So we're still in our nascent stages of understanding the human body, let alone the brain. The brain's a whole nother map that we're trying to figure out. So what could you do right now as our age or an adult to tap into that? So one of the things, like you said earlier, meditation. There's numerous studies. I, I use transcendental meditation. Uh, Oprah uses it, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Howard Stern. It's very popular. It's called TM for short, Transcendental Meditation. It was a required course in the 70s for Ivy Leagues. So they used to use this as a required prerequisite course. And it's 20 minutes twice a day, completely unguided. There's no app. It's unguided. And you get trained in it. And then you're a TMer for life. So meditation is one. Breathing is another. So I'll tell you how I start my morning. This is what I learned from neuroscientists. You want to get as much oxygen to the brain as fast as possible as soon as you wake up. Just think about it. When you're not using oxygen, not using water, not using food, which one could you last the longest without? Food. And then the second longest, water. Breath, very short amount of time before your brain tissue starts to die without breathing. So you want to get as much oxygen to the brain as fast as possible. So one of the ways that I do that and what I learned from neuroscience is the cat-cow method. So I do 10 cat-cows as soon as I wake up with 10 deep breaths. This is called a power breath. So I use a 1-4-2 ratio. So I inhale, hold, and then exhale. And it's on a 1-4-2 ratio. So for example, if you want to inhale five seconds, that's a ratio of one. And then you hold for 20 seconds, that's a ratio of four. And then you exhale for 10 seconds, that's a ratio of two. So five second inhale, 20 second hold, 10 second exhale. And I do that 10 times while I'm doing the cat cows, which is the yoga pose. Where so you arch are you your back. inhaling when you're arcing and then exhaling when you're going down? Inhaling when you're arching your back Ar and okay. then when you, when you close, cause your diaphragm is compressing. So you want to exhale when your diaphragm's comp compressing. So do that to get immediately get cerebral spinal fluid through the spine to the brain. You want to light the spinal cord up, the central nervous system up. And the way you can do that is with these cat cows and with your deep breath. And then I immediately drink 20 ounces of water. And then I get exposure to the sun. The sunlight sets the circadian rhythm. So you want to get the vitamin D. The eyes are one of the most vascular parts of the body. So you're getting vitamin D assimilating to the body through the bloodstream. So it gets sun exposure. That sets the circadian rhythm. And meditation, 20 minutes. I use the Muse too to track. I know we talked about this EEG. So I like tracking it from a scientific level. And then I use the Whoop for the sleep tracking. So I do that. And then I do something on a rebounder. It's a mini trampoline where I lymphosize the body. This is what Tony Robbins uses before he goes on stage. So I'll jump and shout my incantations to get the body viscerally feeling the energy. But there's science behind this. It's called lymphosizing. Your lymphatic system is what removes toxins from the body. So I jump on this trampoline and it's not those typical old school trampolines with the metal springs. It has like a hundred bungee cords. And you jump about two times the force of gravity when you're coming down. So it shocks the lymphatic system and gets the lymph fluid, which is why they test like your lymph, your lymph nodes will get swollen when you're sick because it's trying to fight inflammation and infection. So you're trying to get the lymph flowing through the body. And the way I do that is jumping on this trampoline. I'll blast some music, embody my incantations, get my body pumped up because you want to excite the lymphatic system. And what happens is something called autolysis, where your cells will start to remove dead, damaged, and old cells and replace them with brand new ones. So you're trying to help your lymphatic system do that. And the way I do that is by jumping on this trampoline rebounder. So you want to do the cat cows, the breathing, get the cerebral spinal fluid going through the brain. 
You want to make sure you're getting exposure to sunlight, meditation, and then lymphosizing the body. Stretching is another way to get the blood flow through and oxygen through to the muscles. So these are little things that you can do as at our age to help the brain repair itself, to help the brain create new neurons, and then also learning something new, going out and, and trying to expose your brain to novelty. Anytime you can learn something new, it requires the brain to create new neurons and fire those synapses. If you get into this routine where you're only doing the same thing over and over and over again, you're, think of your brain as like highways. You're following the same highway. And these neural pathways just get a deeper and deeper groove every time. It's the same reason why do you ever go to the same path every day. You're commuting the same path every day. And then one day, you're going to take a different path, but you end up going the same route you usually do. That's because of these neural pathways have been so deeply ingrained that you continue to follow it because it's easier. Remember, your brain is always trying to conserve energy. So when you learn something new, it requires more cognitive bandwidth, more energy to do this, but it helps create these new neural pathways, these new synapses. And there's a great this is the second book, I'll conclude by saying this because I've been going for a while, but this, the second book I recommend more often than any other is called The One Thing by Gary Keller. He's the founder of Keller Williams Real Estate, the largest real estate company in the world. And it's all about cognitive bandwidth. How do you conserve cognitive bandwidth? It's called The One Thing by Gary Keller. And the whole idea is you want to focus on the absolute most important thing first, Brian Tracy calls this eat that frog because that's when you have the most amount of cognitive bandwidth. So every time you do these small little things, you're using cognitive bandwidth, small decisions like what am I going to eat today? How much of it do I have to buy at the grocery store? You know, how am I going to cook it? What's the step-by-step -step pre preparation? All these trivial decisions are wasting precious cognitive bandwidth. It's why Obama typically wore one of three suits and the reason he had one of three email responses which was like yes no or discuss later it's because they were trying to conserve cognitive bandwidth for the trivial decisions so they can use their cognitive bandwidth for more important things and creative decisions and one of the ways that you can conserve your cognitive bandwidth is make sure you're doing the most important mentally taxing task first when you have the highest amount of cognitive bandwidth what about when you go to sleep? You have this amazing routine for waking up. It seems like it's about an hour long. Does that sound about right? Yeah, there's a you know, plus or minus. Mine's about an hour and 15 minutes because of the incantations I do. But you know, for some, it could be shorter. It doesn't need to be that long for it to be effective. There's other forms of meditation. One of the things I was going to mention before I get to the evening routine is one of the things I, I would mention to clients about meditation is if you're just starting out, there's headspace. There's Calm. These are apps that are great for starting out. But if for someone that likes variety, maybe you don't like listening to the same voice every day or you don't like listening to the same nature sounds every day, there's something called Insight Timer. Insight Timer. And it has, it's a platform for meditation practitioners from around the world to provide their own practice on the platform. So you can listen to a new meditation every day because there's thousands of people to listen to. Short, long, in the middle, you know, nature sounds, guided, unguided, they have a plethora. So if you like variety, I recommend that one. But if you're really looking for an advanced level of meditation, transcendental meditation is what I would recommend. And I, I don't work for that, disclaimer. So I don't get uh, compensated for saying that for any of those. But um, to answer your question about a night routine, what I recommend to clients and what some of my clients do is you have a set time that you anchor your wind down to. So it's important to have a wind down routine. And anchoring it can help. So anchoring means, let's say you brush your teeth every night at 9 p.m. You already know that's going to happen. You already do that regularly. You don't have to use much cognitive bandwidth. It's kind of second nature to you. Well, if you want to instill a new habit, a new wind down routine, anchor it to that already existing habit. It takes less cognitive bandwidth to do so. So let's say, okay, before I can brush my teeth, I'm going to do two things. And that's what I recommend to clients. You have a light setting for nighttime. So turn X amount of number of lights off. So you should only have like your bedtime light on or your nighttime lights. We use a Himalayan salt rock lamp. That's our nighttime light. We know it's, it triggers the brain to start releasing the melatonin 
So you start to sleep better. So it's triggering the brain like, oh, it's time to get ready for bed. So that's one thing. The other thing is temperature. You want to sleep about 65 to 68 degrees at nighttime. So we turn our temperature down. So we're anchoring these habits to a one that we're already doing regularly. These are quick little tricks that you can use to make sure that you're putting your body in a place that's conducive for sleep. Another thing you can do is, you know, blue light blocking uh, glasses. I use Warby Parker because they don't have those funky yellow lenses. They have regu regular clear lenses that don't look like you're wearing those funky ones, but it still blocks the blue light. So you want to remove screen time at a certain time before bed. I recommend two hours and then set the temperature, set the lighting and anchor these habits all to one habit that you're already doing. That, that's a tough one right there, right? Like you set this anchor and then you have these two hours without your phone, right? So you're thinking to yourself, what do you do during those two hours? I mean, you can read, but what else do you do? That's a great point. You, you can never end a habit. You only replace it with a different one or a better one. So uh, there's a lot of studies behind, you know, quitting smoking or quitting a certain diet habit that you have. You have to replace it with a new and better one. You can't just get rid of it. So you want to think about what are the things that you could do that will still allow you to feel like you're getting something out of it. You're getting some sort of stimuli, but it's to the point where it's conducive to sleep. So one of the things that my clients do is, like you said, read, but not on a screen. Um, they don't expose themselves to blue light. And the, one of the ways you could do that is with efflux or the night shift on Apple products. And then also a hot shower. Believe it or not, I do cold showers at the end of every shower, except when it's at nighttime before bed. It, it sounds counterintuitive, but you actually want to take a hot shower to lower your core temperature. A cold shower will actually increase your core temperature. So before bed, a hot bath or a hot shower helps lower the, the core temperature of the body, which helps prepare it for sleep. So the body uses blood for thermoregulation to control your temperature. So you want to make sure that the, the blood is, is setting you up for sleep. And so what happens is the blood removes toxins from the body, brings nutrients to the body, brings oxygen to the body. So the way that you can help it is by lowering the temperature. So it's not being used for thermoregulation. It's being used for the pro body's process to clean it out and repair it. That's what happens when we sleep. We're just repairing the body, recovering to prepare it for the next day. So to answer your question, those are some of the things that you can do. A hot tea, so something that doesn't have caffeine. You know, a lot of people like to use that wind down tea. Some people, you know, prefer just hot water with lemon. But what are, what are some of the things that you're doing to wind well, down? Well, I have this Himalayan salt rock right here, right? So that's all you're using for like a reading light and everything? Exactly. So all the lights go off except that Himalayan salt rock. And it's just a, a light gloom, you know, it, it's just a light, soothing, calming glow. So you don't have that bright exposure. And it, what it's doing is triggering to the brain. Oh, it's time for sleep. Cause you know, think about the Neanderthals. They didn't have artificial lighting. When the sun went down, they went to sleep. When the sun came up, you know, they woke up. So we want to make sure we're kind of simulating that. And there's a, there's a little trick you can, you can take an assessment online from Dr. Daniel Pink's research in the book, When, and it helps you. I can send it to you for your show notes, for your audience, but it's a little assessment. It tells you, when do you perform the best? When is your cognitive bandwidth the highest? Because there's three different waves that the human body goes through in a 24-hour period. The peak, the trough, and the rebound. So the peak is where your highest energy is. And for night owls, that's the night. For larks, that's really early in the morning. But for the majority of us, it's something called the third bird. And that's where you're kind of around that 9 a.m., 8 a.m., 7 a.m. wake up period where your peak is there. And your trough is your lowest energy of the day. And your rebound comes back up, but not as high as the peak. So there's certain, you should do analytical tasks during the peak, creative insight tasks during your trough, and then more mundane tasks like uh, let's say emails, for example, during the rebound. So there's a reason why you do them in each. And in the book, When by Dr. Daniel Pink, he shares this. Um, but one of the things I like to do, like speaking of books, 
I'll share a, a reading trick that I use for you and your audience. So this is a book nudge. It's about behavioral economics. If you haven't already read it by Dr. Fowler and Sunstein, they are Nobel laureates for the, from the university of Chicago. And I use this pen. You've seen this before, right? It's got love, four love different colors, best pens. Usually they have the blue and the white here. So it might be a little unrecognizable to those uh, listening, but each color represents a different strategy. And I'll, I'm going to share it with you. I invented this in about 2014, 2013, because I realized books are only as good as how often you reference back to them. You could, anybody could read a book and then it just sits on the shelf and you never actually apply what you learned. So I wanted to make sure I was applying in real life everything that I learned from these books. So what I did was each color represents a different thing. So red is for words that I don't know. So I define it in red, I underline it and then write the definition right in there. Green is for an action item. So anything, let's say this author recommends another book within this book, then I'll write that down like, oh, I wanna go check out that book or a business or a company that I should look up, I'll put it in green. That means it's an action item for me. So here, this is in green. It means I wanna look this up. This, the calories count in New York City it was a famous study. Blue is my version of highlighting. The reason I don't use a highlighter is because when you reference back a year from now in that same book, the highlighter fades. So that's why I started using this pen. And then black, the last one, is for these little post-it notes. There's, they're little post-its mini post-its and I put them in major concepts in the book. So let's say there's a statistic I wanna rec uh, remember. I'll put the page number and the concept that I'm learning. So this one's about 401k statistics. Uh, this one's about ties that were used as napkins. Jim, the story of Jim Jones poisoning his cult, you know, his cult followers. So each concept is written here so that way when I want to reference back to this book, I don't have to reread the whole thing. I could go through each major concept and see the areas that are highlighted in the blue. So that's my reading trick for you and your audience. You're really good at getting people hyped on learning. <laughs> it's so you're, important. Well, you're just naturally so inclined to, you find it fascinating. You're this lifelong learner and you've optimized your whole life to learning and getting your brain to work and being healthy and these healthy habits and high performance and all this stuff. I mean, I can't imagine a more healthy habit than your habit, which is trying to become a better habiter. <laughs> <laughs> An autodidact, I like to call it. Yeah, I, I love learning, but that's actually how coaching kind of came about. I was like, I never looked at coaching as a career. I just did it on the side to help other people. And I'm like, wait a second. I went to date with destiny with Tony Robbins and one of the exercises we go through, it helps you see like, what is a common trend or pattern that you've noticed in your whole life? And, and I read the book flow, which is like finding that purpose and your greatest passion and greatest competency. That's your purpose. So I look back, I'm like, Oh my gosh, my whole life, ever since I was a kid, I always learned something, experimented and tested it on myself. And if it worked, I immediately shared it with my friends and family. I'm like, you got to try this. Look what it did to me. And I was so juiced up by that. I was so excited. And I noticed, you know, he asked a question. What do you notice you do naturally when you have complete free time and you're not required to do anything? What do you naturally find yourself doing? And it's this. I learned something, test it on myself, and then share it with other people. And I realized like, this is what I should do as a career. And I've been lucky because my coach is Tony Robbins' son. He lived in Tampa for a while, so I got lucky. He became my coach. And I learned a lot of my methodology and training from him, which has got me to where I am now, coaching the clients that I do. And I realized that my whole life I had been doing this, but I never looked at it as a career. And that's the key of flow, is finding something you're really good at and you're really passionate about it, and then you don't feel like you're working. Then you just enjoy life doing what you love and making a living doing it and serving as many people as possible. I think that's a great note to end off on because that was just on point. <laughs> Man, this has been so great. I, 
everything you're saying, I'm, my brain's spinning back and forth because I know my habits are terrible. Like I need to get, I do some things like the water in the morning and get the sun exposure, but the cat cows, the deep breathing, I need to get better. And I feel like every single human that we have on the podcast or person has a, they're very stylistic, right? Everyone's approach is different. And some people are going to vibe with others. I think you're going to vibe with a lot of, of people compared to other people, just the way you explain things and the excitement you come at learning because learning should be exciting, right? But it's tough to compete against phones and like the adrenaline and the serotonin you get from checking your social media and your apps. So trying to get more excitement from digesting books than the excitement of checking your phone, mm. that's like something that needs to happen in this world. <laughs> There's so much opportunity. At the end of the day, Ian, we're all just animals. We're animals that happen to be really smart and we passed on knowledge, things that we've learned, mistakes that we've learned from, from previous generations to now. So if at the end of the day, we're just animals, how can we perform at a better rate? How can we perform at our peak state and our highest level of energy? Because regardless of what you do, whether you're working a nine to five job, you're just starting out your company, you're an athlete, a musician, everybody at the end of the day has cells and we need to let those cells flourish. Your brain's made of cells, your muscles are made of cells, your lungs, everything is made of cells. So how do you think of health and energy on a cellular level? Water, breathing, nutrition. If you can get your body in habits to make sure that you're performing in your peak state at all times, irrespective of what you're doing, you're gonna do it better than if you weren't taking care of those cells. So I try to help my clients think of health and the human body in a cellular level so we're all performing at our peak state. One of the things I, I always tell people is, listen, athletes might not have a coach, but every Olympian does. Coaching can help you see the blind spots, can help you understand where you might be missing something. They observe your behavior and invest directly in you. And it's becoming more and more popular, but Steve Jobs had a coach. CEO of Google has a coach. COO of Facebook has a coach. It, it used, it's been used by Silicon Valley entrepreneurs for years, but it's now starting to become more mainstream because people are like, oh, this actually works. And I always tell people, it's an investment in you because a lot of people look at this stigma like, oh, I don't need someone to help me. It's kind of like the old you know, stigma that therapists had. Therapists used to be like, oh, I don't need a therapist. I don't need someone to help me. You know, there's something wrong with me. There's, I'm not broken. And now people are realizing, oh, actually mental health is really important. Emotional health is really important. Everybody should have a therapist. And that's now starting to happen with coaching. Like a lot of people thought, oh, I don't need a coach but you're not broken. You don't need to be fixed. It's just helping you perform in your peak state. Just like Olympians have coaches. It's people that want to perform at that top 1% of whatever they're doing and someone that can directly invest in you. Because as an entrepreneur, you can't always tell your co-founders everything. You can't always tell your board members everything. You can't always tell your investors everything and your family, your friends, your significant other. Not because you don't want to, you want to be open, transparent, honest, but they might have an inherent bias or they have a conflict of interest. But who do you have in your life that you could talk to without an inherent bias, without a conflict of interest, and you can be completely vulnerable without judgment? And someone that's directly invested in your success and your success only. Not many people, unless you have a coach, there's really no one out there that doesn't have that bias. So that's why I encourage people to reach out so they can learn new things like you're saying and get the most out of life. This, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is our life. So we might as well go out and skydive, go out and scuba dive and live life to the absolute fullest we can. Damn. Wow. Whew. Powerful stuff, man. Powerful stuff. I can't wait to re-listen to this. I was taking notes midway and I'm like, I'm focus. Before you know it, I was classes in session. How can, not, people, how can people find you? How can people follow you? How can people reach out? Sure. I, and I share more about this reading trick on, on my website, imphilmichaels.com. Keep it easy. And my Instagram handle is imphilmichaels. So keep it simple. And, you know, it's, it's a blessing to be able to be here with you and just share these stories. And it's not just a damn good day to have a damn good day. It's a damn good life to live a damn good life. Amen to that. Woo!
That's the new shirt incoming, <laughs> 2021. <laughs> I love right, it. It's actually perfect timing. I, I appreciate everything. Everyone should check out his Instagram. It's amazing. You're just so inspiring. I'm excited. I'm going to be visiting Tampa uh, for Halloween, it's looking like. So I'll see you soon. Perfect. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Which will be awesome. And uh, man, I just, I, I appreciate this. I like, I'm, as soon as I get over here, I'm going to get my 142 cat Callen. I'm like, I knew something <laughs> was wrong. I knew I wasn't firing the right nerve. Watch out, world. Once these neurons start firing, it's game over, you know? <laughs> I'm honored. I'm honored. Thank you. All right. Ian. Appreciate it. Till next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.